Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información. So your ability to craft this story where people just listen and they're like, I'm going to ignore the metrics. I just want to give this person my money is really become the core competence. Now, where you get into trouble is a line between vision exaggeration and fraud gets thinner and thinner, right? Adam Newman exaggerated, Elizabeth Holmes lied. Welcome to Armbrand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the podcast uh, built around one simple premise that everything today is a brand. Every person, every celebrity, every athlete, every product, every corporation, every movement is a brand, branded set of values. And um, what we do here is two things. First, we do a big interview with a big personality. And today we're going to have uh, Scott Galloway. Uh, he's a professor at, at NYU Stern Business, probably one of the most influential business thinkers today, best-selling author. Uh, we're going to talk brands. We're going to kind of talk where the world is going. He, he is one of the most fascinating guys out there. You're going to have to listen to this interview. He's really, really that special. And uh, we also do what I call our Brands of the Week. And those are basically finding out which brands are moving the zeitgeist, who's up, who's down, who's going in which direction. And let's get right into it. Our first brand of the week is brand down for um, the odds of candidates winning <laughs> the election. You know, I always like to say follow the money. And this is interesting is uh, unfortunately, according to the Las Vegas Review, Donald Trump's chances of being elected president in 2024 are the best since he left the White House uh, he leads the field of candidates with a 26% likelihood of winning. Smart markets rate Trump as a 70% chance to run again. It's interesting. President Joe Biden is given only a 15% chance of re-election. One in six, which is incredibly low for a sitting president. And they say Trump has a 41% chance to win in 2024. So uh, bad news on the Vegas betting odds for the Democrats. We're not surprised at this point. Obviously, there's a long time between now and 2024 but brand down for betting odds for president. Brand down for Trump TV. Um, you know, he's got Trump social, so now he wants to do Trump's media company, a pro-gun programming, cancel shows, no woke content for streaming services, uh, a basically a Netflix of right-wing content, Trump-specific programming, a Netflix-style offering, squarely pitched as MAGA followers, just what we need down. So a huge brand down for that. That'll be a failure like everything else he does. Let's now get into... Uh, Guns. Uh, obviously, this is the first time I'm I'm doing my show since since the the, the tragic shooting um, in Texas. Uh, the 19 kids, two teachers. Um, there's no words for it. I, I I I just you know I'm gonna you know we've all heard it and it it just these fucking coward Republicans. Um, Trump spoke at the NRA brand down for the NRA, an ongoing brand down for NRA. Basically, what disgusts me is Trump read all the names of the little children that died and, and talked about the problem is mental health and the problem is uh, broken families. And yeah, how about maybe the fucking problem is automatic weapons uh, and background checks? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But um, brand out to the NRA and brand out to Trump. And this, I wish I had something different to say than something you've already heard every which way. There's something wrong in our system right now that allows this to happen, that allows for 90% of Americans, 90% want background checks. 67% um, want a ban on assault weapons. 
There's no reason for assault weapons other than mass killings there. And any of this bullshit about it's protected in the Second Amendment, that's bullshit. You can't own a bazooka. You can't own a tank. The right to bear arms, yes, but it does not protect your right to bear weapons of war. Like I said, you can't have hand grenades. Um, you can't have a bazooka. You can't have missile launchers. You shouldn't have AR-15 uh, assault-style weapons. So I'm sick like everybody else is. And if I had a TV show every day, I would, re I would be listing the 50 Republican senators who do nothing, putting their faces up there. It, blood is on their hands. Um, it just is. These are the people, 10 of them can change it. And they refuse to do it because they're cowards. And it's heartbreaking. Some more brand down for gun stats in America. There are 120 guns for every U.S., for every 100 Americans. Think about that. There's more guns than people in this country. About 44% of the U.S. adults live in a household with a gun. Uh, in 2018, gun makers produced 9 million firearms in this country, more than double that amount of manufacturing in 2008. Um, just frightening. Um, U.S. has the highest firearm homicide in the developed world. The number of U.S. deaths from gun violence was about four per 100,000 people, 18 times the average rate in other developed countries. Um, there are more has become the number one cause of death for American kids. Um, it's just, I can go on with the stats, but we are a, like no other civilized country in this world, the way we handle guns and the situation with guns and how guns are part of the American brand. And once again, the right to bear arms, absolutely. Second Amendment, absolutely. Nobody's questioning that. Uh, but you also can't use free speech, but you can't yell fire at a movie theater. So it's just, it's just disgusting. And it's just... Uh, as I said, 84% uh, strongly or somewhat support preventing sales of all firearms. People re reported as dangerous to law enforcement. Um, I said the 67% banning assault weapons. 75% strongly or somewhat support creating a national database with each gun sale. And 18% strongly or somewhat opposes. So I, you know, in, in all my years of covering politics, I've never seen the numbers so stacked in a direction for what these people want. And this is a democracy. And we have leaders that are just ignoring what, nine, forget ignoring common sense and forget ignoring protecting our children. Ignoring what 90% of this country wants. And there's something fucking wrong with that. Now let's move off of guns. Uh, I guess that's the problem. I say, let's move off of guns because that's what happens. Every, we go through this and there's days or weeks of outrage and then the parade moves on and it happens again and we go, how can this happen again? And... Something's got to change. Something's just got to fucking change. <sighs> okay, let's move on. Um, millennial workers. Millennials brand up are driving the remote work push. An overwhelming majority of Americans, 77% whose job can be done remotely, say it's important their employer allow them to work remotely. They want to, according to a new Harris poll. Survey finds that over half workers say they are likely to switch to a hybrid or remote job to work more flexibly. So we've talked a lot about this on this show. Um... It's if you want to keep workers, you're going to have to give them remote opportunities. I'm against it, but lucky I'm not running a country anymore. I'm not running a company anymore. Lucky for employees. Lucky for me, because I have trouble keeping people. Brand down for big cities. Saw population declines during the pandemic. More than half of the country, 15 largest cities, saw population decreases during the coronavirus. Um, the switch to remote work during the pandemic may enable many people to leave cities. Uh, New York remains the nation's largest city in its population by more than 305,000 people, but they've lost by 305,000 people in the pandemic, 3.5% of its population. Uh, LA lost 40,000 people, roughly 1% of its population. So uh, people leaving the cities. Uh, brand up for babies. U.S. births increased for the first time since 2014. They increased the last first time in seven years. American women had about 3.66 million babies in 2021, up 1%. The rebound spanned age groups with birth rates raising for every cohort of women age 25 and older. So babies, brand up for babies. Uh, brand up for Pepsi. And they're leaving the Super Bowl halftime show. And I, I, I think that's smart. I think that's a way somebody, supposedly it's $50 million. And if I was right now in charge of Pepsi, you said, okay, you need to get more Pepsi drinkers I could spend $50 million a lot more effectively than the Pepsi halftime show. I don't think one person's drinking one more Pepsi because they sponsor a halftime show. The stars of the show are obviously the acts. Last year, we had a great one. Uh, we had great ones with Mary J. Blige and Snoop Dogg and Eminem and 50 Cent. But this, I always wonder these sponsoring of, of a halftime show or something like that where you get your name. And the name is mentioned, obviously, many, many times. And your logo's up there. 
But I think in this very targeted world today of social media and options to reach consumers, I give them a brand up for walking away from it. Um, Super Bowl's not going to be happy with me. Brand up for the NBA Finals. Old Dynasty, New Dynasty. We've got the New Dynasty, the Warriors, against the Old Dynasty, the Celtics. If you wagered a buck on the Celtics at the beginning of this year to win the finals, they were 50 to 1 odds. It's incredible. And it's the lot, that's the biggest odds of any team to ever reach the finals. So that's pretty incredible. It's going to be a great series. I'm very psyched for it. Um, it starts, this, this, this breaks Thursday, so it starts tonight on Thursday. Um, it's going to be a great series. I am going to be rooting for Golden State. Although I like the guys in Boston. I like Tatum. I like Brown. I like Marcus Smart. I like Al Horford. But I can never root for Boston. If you're in New York, you can't root for Boston in anything. It's just one of those things. You can't root for the Patriots. You can't root for the Celtics. can't root for the Red Sox. Uh, so I will be rooting for the Dubs. Uh, by the way, tickets for the Warriors, the Celtics' first game. On Ticketmaster, game one courtside seats were valued at $59,000. SeatGeek's prices were $30,000 and StubHub's were $41,000. So anywhere between thirty dollars and $60,000 for a courtside seat. That's a lot of money for courtside seats. Um, the last time these two teams met was Bill Russell against Will Chamberlain. There you go. Brand up for Justin Timberlake. He's selling his catalog to a fund black by a fund backed by Blackstone for 100 million bucks. Songs include Crimey River, Sexy Back, Can't Stop the Feeling. He's gonna own all his uh hits going forward, new ones. In December, Bruce Springsteen sold his catalog to Sony for $550 million. So it's a nice payday for these guys to sell their catalog and uh, good for them. Brand up, I've talked about it for weeks to come. I predicted it. Top Gun Maverick, uh, huge monster weekend, $150 million at the box office. And what was interesting, that's just domestically, uh, it was Tom Cruise's biggest de debut movie. And he had older audiences there, guys like me. I went, I went over the weekend. I just had to go see it. And it's great. <laughs> if you like Top Gun, it's just, you know, there are very few things you get to kind of relive again. And, you know, that were part of your youth or culture. I guess when Top Gun came out, I was around, 29, uh, 28, something like that. And I've watched it over the years like everybody else has, but to just kind of go revisit the characters or a couple of the characters at least. Val Kimmer's got a cameo in there. Um, he, Miles Terrell plays Goose's son. But brand up for Top Gun Maverick, it's going to continue to do monster, monster numbers. Um, <laughs> this is a great one. Brand up for Winnie the Pooh. All of a sudden now, Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain, which means you don't have to buy the right. At a certain point in time, if somebody doesn't own the rights or something's in the public domain, anybody can use it for anything. You don't have to pay for the rights of Winnie the Pooh. So what do we have now? We have Winnie the Pooh goes slasher. Uh, Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Uh, it just, they wrap production. And the first still shows a demonic Pooh and Piglet about to pounce on a scantily clad young woman relaxing in a hot tub. Uh, it, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, see Pooh and Piglet as the main villains going on a rampage after being abandoned by a college-bound Christopher Robin. I think this is genius. <laughs> Winnie, Winnie, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet in a slasher movie as the villains. I mean, somebody's got that thinking cap on there, so I give that a big brand up. Brand out for New York payphones, the last one. Last public payphone said their goodbyes this week uh, from a wide going area. You know, it's just... It's one of those things that disappear and you go, huh? Oh yeah, wait, no more payphones. They were pretty gross anyway. You picked them up. There was always some liquid on their ear. I mean, just people, God knows what they were doing to those payphones. But uh, they were part of New York and I'm sad to see them go. Brand up for minivans. It's hot. It, minivans are back. People used to make fun of them. The average price of new minivans as a category was up 43% nationwide from the first quarter of 2022 versus 2017. Obviously the prices of everything is up. Minivans has gotten hot. People used to make fun of them. And now they're cool. There's a lot of like kind of cool style minivans. Um, prices for three-year-old Dodge Grand Caravans were up 64% from the quarter earlier. Uh, minivans making a comeback. I always thought cool minivans would be cool. And I think they're starting to make some of them now. Brand up for grocery stores. Grocery brands are surging in popularity. The Axios Harris Poll 100 is an annual survey to gauge the reputations of the most visible, visible brands in America. And this year, for the first time in its six-year history, three grocery brands, Trader Joe's, H-E-B, and Wegmans, landed in the polls top 10. It's interesting how people are putting uh, grocery stores rank highly, both amongst Democrats and Republicans. And Trader Joe's ranks in the top 10 companies among Democrats and Republicans alike also. So grocery stores, people are liking them. They're feeling pretty good about them. Interesting. Uh, here's one. 
Brand down for Steakum Sheets. That's it. Sheets that smell like Steakum. Picture this. Your nostrils quiver. I'm just reading this from something. Quiver as the swaddling scent of a home-cooked dinner wafts into your sensory space. Perhaps a home-cooked steak or a mom's beef stroganoff. You inhale that savory, seductive smell and open your eyes not to find a steaming plate of meat, but <laughs> a set beef-scented sheets. There you go. The queen-size linen design with the likeness of a meat, an extremely lacking pattern of moist, textured shades of brown, and are scented like the brand's, brand's signature product. An infomercial-like demo for the set, which includes a fitted sheet, top sheet, and two pillowcases details, features an extremely low thread crown. The setup is available for purchase of $49.99 with the promo code BEEFCURIOUS. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're looking to, you know, create a sexy environment. I'm just not sure how beef-scented sheets are doing that. I don't want to know. I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. Everybody's got their thing. Everybody's got their fetishes. But I can't see, like, honey. Mmm, wow, that smells good. Is that a rib roast or is that a T-bone? There you go. Walmart drones, brand up. Walmart announces same-day drone delivery service in six states. Think about this. There it is. There's your loaf of bread hovering up above. It's here. The future is here. You've been working hard on a new drone delivery system available in select cities. We learned that Walmart will officially expand the same-day drone delivery service to six states, serving nearly 4 million people. Uh, Phoenix, Tampa, Orlando, Salt Lake. Basically, you can order something anytime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. and get it delivered by drone in under two hours for only $3.99. Customers can order anything from batteries, toilet paper, diapers, or even hot dog buns and have them delivered. I just don't know how this is safe up in the air with planes and things flying around. And I, I just, I don't want to see a box of Pampers flying through the air. So sometimes, I mean, this is a great advancement. You get something delivered by two hours on a drone, but I don't know, man. Sometimes we're going a little too fast. That just sounds like an old guy. Here's a good one. A New York um, government robot to brand up for them. This is a nice thing. The state of New York will distribute robot companions to the homes of more than 800 older adults. The robots are not able are not able to help with physical tasks, but function as more proactive versions of digital assistants like Siri or Alexa. They engage users in small talk, helping contact loved ones and keeping track of health goals like exercise, medication. It's meant to help address the growing problem of social isolation among the elderly. It's really nice. I think that's a great idea. And that's 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 robots doing the right thing. Not when you're seeing all these movies where robots take over and destroy mankind. I think that's helping mankind. Brand up for Arby's. This is an interesting one. Arby's is selling a burger for the first time. Who would have thunk? That's right. Arby's is always roast beef and all kinds of meat. They're finally selling the Wagyu Steakhouse Burger. Of course, $5.99. I love Arby's. I think that's great, great news there. And finally, brand up for TikTok pet influencers. The richest animals on TikTok make up pet influencers make up 26,000 per post. All About Cats released the earnings of the app's animal accounts Friday. The top of the leaderboard, that little puff, a furry great kitty estimated to earn over 26,000 a post. With 27 million followers and over 500 million likes, the cat, with the help of crafty edits by humans, test recipes and life hacks posted by other users. The number two spot is Jeff Palm, a puffy headed Pomeranian with a full wardrobe. The end of civilization, as we know it. And those are brands of the week. <laughs> Let's get to my interview with, with Professor Scott Galloway. Galloway. You're going to really, this, this is a brilliant mind. And please trust me, listen to this interview. I want to talk to you about Freshly. If you want fast, healthy, great food delivered to your home, if you want to save time, you don't like fast food, you don't want to cook when you get home, but you want healthy, fantastic food, I want to talk to you about Freshly. Food that that's fast, doesn't have to be fast food. It offers quality meals without the hard work. The meals are designated by nutritionists, cooked by chefs, and then delivered fresh. Other meal deliveries need to be prepped and cooked, but Freshly is ready to eat in three minutes. You get the meals that are completely made, you just pop them in three minutes. White bean turkey chili bowl, homestyle chicken, steak peppercorn. It's delicious chef-made nutrient-packed meals delivered straight to your door, no cooking required, fresh and never frozen, ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. Use the Freshly website or app to find meals that fit your lifestyle. Choose from over 50 nutritionist design entrees like their classic steak peppercorn multi-serve sides, like their massive mac and cheese and a new line of plant-based meals. Skip the grocery shopping dirty dishes. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week. Stop stressing about dinner right now. Freshly is offering our listeners, this is a good deal, 125 bucks off your first five orders when you go to freshly.com slash Donnie. That's 125 bucks off freshly.com slash Donnie. 
That's 125 bucks off at Freshly.com slash Donnie. I want to talk to you about Chime Credit Builder. Is the piece of plastic in your wallet doing enough for you? Because with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card, you can start building credit with everyday purchases and on-time payments. You see, with Credit Builder, members can increase their credit history with no annual fees or interest. And having a good credit score can mean getting better car loan rates or renting apartments easier or just bragging rights around the dinner table. This is, this is a really, really smart thing, I'm telling you. You want Chime Credit, credit Builder. It, 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 continue credit journey with Chime. Sign up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started on Chime.com slash Donnie. That's Chime.com slash Donnie. The Chime Credit Card, Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Stride Bank NA, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Chime Checking Account, and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secure Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Regular on-time payment history can have a positive effect on your credit score. Impact score may vary, and some users' scores may not improve. If the piece of your plastic in your wallet is not doing enough for you, Chime Credit Builder. Get started at Chime.com slash Donnie. That's Chime.com slash Donnie. Sign up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at Chime.com slash Donnie. That's Chime.com slash Donnie. I am thrilled to today's guest, uh, Professor Scott Galloway, uh, one of the most influential business thought leaders in the world. I think his goal, I've, written, I've read somewhere, is to be the most influential thought leader, thought leader in the business world. Still uh, time, Donnie. Still, still time. time. But, you know, it's, it's a journey, as they say. Uh, he is co-host of the magnificent podcast, Pivot, with my friend Kara Swisher. He's written three books. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about them today, uh, specifically the four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, as we watch the market crash around us. Uh, he started 10 businesses. Uh, he's got an incredibly successful newsletter. He is a renaissance man, a big thinker. And I'm thrilled to have you here today, man. Appreciate it. Donnie, thanks. I appreciate the uh, warm introduction. Uh, so as we watch, we're in the middle of a, a market. Uh, we can call it a correction if we want to use the, the nice words, or we want to. We can call it a meltdown if we want to get a little bit more into hyperbole. Give me your take on what's going on as we sit here today uh, watching the market off almost 20% this year and prognosticators saying uh, this is just the beginning and there's more to come. Yeah, I don't. The, the honest answer is I, I don't know um, what's happening here. I don't think I know any less or any more than anybody else. Um, what uh, I was a graduate student instructor in macroeconomics for Christina Rona, Romer at uh, Berkeley when I was in graduate school. And there was just some truisms of economic history. The first is you can't tame this type of inflation without raising interest rates pretty aggressively. You can't raise interest rates this aggressively without going into recession. And then you have these growthy stocks, a lot of these stocks, if you looked at them right now and you didn't know that they were off 70%, you would look at them now at traditional metrics and they don't look cheap even now. Yeah. I mean, Tesla's still trading at 20 times revenues and BMW trades at one uh, in terms of enterprise value to revenues. So I think there's some real opportunities here. Uh, the only advice I would give to anybody is don't trust your emotions uh, when there's market swings like this, that you know, you want to be diversified and great investors, it's more about temperament than it is about your ability to trade the market. I don't think anyone can time the markets. I certainly can. Yeah. The The part that I think is really dangerous or could go down really dramatically is if you think about crypto's real advantage in the market was because it has no underlying cash flows usually, it, it doesn't have the gravity. Like if Bitcoin is up 13 fold, which it is in the last five years, even after this drawdown, there's no reason people don't have a reason not to think it won't go up double because it has no underlying earnings to benchmark it against peers. So it has mm -hmm. no gravity. At the same time, going down, it has no... At some point, Apple and Facebook just begin to look cheap and people move in, value investors move in. You know, and sometimes when something's trading at single digits, multiple on earnings, people will move in and start buying it. But technically, there's no ceiling and no floor on crypto. And in a negative sentiment market like this, I think that's the part of the market that could see the greatest volatility. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts, Donnie. I, it was kind of a blather there. Yeah, no, it wasn't a blather at all. Look, it, it you know, I'm 64, so I've, I've lived through a lot. What's scarier about this particular moment in the market than when I go back to 2008 or if I go back to the beginning of the pandemic, you had the government working for you. You know, you had basically, you had a, you had market you know, really serious situations in the market, but you had the government fly. As to your point now, we're just going to be staring at more higher interest rates coming through, and we know what that does. 
So I think we're still in for a lot of pain. And I think that it's, uh, I don't think we've gotten into the fear factor yet where to your point, temperament does take over uh, for a lot of investors and the, the pain just gets too much. So, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I, I it just, it is what it is, but I, I've never, and the more I read, the more I've, I've never seen so many people so down on things and just where we are. It's just because we're coming off, you know, such a sugar high for so long. Uh, so, you know, it is, uh, I think there's, there's more pain to come, but it is what it is. And, uh, the scary part, when you think about it, you, you've talked about this, that you've got, you know, seven companies that make up 50% of the, of the S and P. And when you have a situation like that, and you have something that's so bloated up top, you fall faster. You know, we saw Facebook lose, what is it? 30% of their value after one earnings call or whatever the hell it was, 20%. And that's that's mm-hmm. scary stuff. And I know you obviously you talk a lot about the big four. We'll take Netflix out of it as, and call it the big four. Um, and you're you're actually very short on the future of Facebook. I'm not talking about the stock that you really you see you you've said that strategically it's the right move. What what Zuckerberg is doing, you know, moving to Meta because Facebook is just kind of a bloated empire at this point. But you still see not great things ahead for Facebook. There's some emotion here, which is also, which is always dangerous in terms of protecting um, the actions of a company because my emotions take over. I think Facebook is a mendacious company. I think we're net gainers from big tech. There's some externalities we need to address, but if we could push a button and do away with big tech, I don't think we'd want to push that button. And I think the majority of nations would take all of these companies with all of their problems and say, sure, relocate to Stockholm or to Cape Town. We'd love to have you. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true of Facebook. I think Facebook is actually a net negative. If you look at when social went on mobile, we've seen just undeniable increases in depression among teens, especially among teen girls. I think they're the they're brightest people, their greatest effort at the most senior levels around delay and obfuscation from the damage they cause as opposed to trying to address those issues. So I, I have some bias against Facebook. <laughs> Now, having said that, if I really wanted to hurt Facebook, I don't think I could have in my wildest dreams come up with a better, more effective plan than what I refer to as the Oculus, which will be the greatest tech hardware failure of the last decade. 40 to 70% of people who put on an Oculus, which is Mark Zuckerberg's big push into the metaverse, uh, report feeling nauseous. And today they announced, ironically, that they're cutting costs at Reality Labs. They're spending around 2 or $3 billion a quarter to try and make this transition to the metaverse. So... I think Mark Zuckerberg's fever dreams of uh, moving to the metaverse are dead on arrival already. Uh, they sold, I think, five or seven million units of Oculus last quarter. Last year, we sold 70 million pairs of Crocs. You sell five to 10 times more game sets. I think the, the portal, if you will, Oculus is a portal into the metaverse. And the majority of my knowledge around the metaverse comes from Disney Plus's series Loki. But you need a you need a seamless portal into other 3D dimension or 3D renderings of the web, which is kind of what the, the metaverse is. And the, the portal that everybody has and is the most underhyped product to the most overhyped product of Oculus, the most underhyped t- technology hardware product is Apple's AirPods, which if they were a standalone company, would be a Fortune 200 business just behind MasterCard, just ahead of Estee Lauder. So I think as much as Facebook is going to do a face plan around the metaverse, I actually think Apple is kind of the unknown toll booth that no one's talking about in terms of the metaverse. So I'm very bearish on Facebook at these price levels. It's actually probably, you could argue, a decent buy because it's still an incredible business. But Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse, I think, is dead on arrival. And how are we feeling about Bezos and Amazon these days? I think he's going to come back. I think he's going to pull a Howard Schultz and come in as the white knight and return to uh, Amazon. If Amazon goes below 2000 bucks a share, which will be about a trillion dollars, I think there's a decent argument that AWS is worth more than the entire company. So I think two, one of two things will happen uh, in the next 12 months if the stock continues its decline. One, Bezos will come back in. Because I, the thing about Bezos, his superpower is storytelling. In addition to being a great operator, he can get on an earnings call in the face of declining revenues and say, we're going to continue to massively invest in this key area and play offense when everyone's playing defense. And the market just loves his story, his demeanor, his leadership. I don't think Andy Jassy brings that kind of storytelling capability. I mean, you're, you're going to forget more than I'm ever going to know about storytelling and branding, but there's just few people in business history who can weave a narrative more credibly and get your greed glands going like Jeff Bezos. He's the guy that shows up and says, investors, sit down. And then he talks about, I was going to have the first vaccinated supply chain and they're doubling down 
on PPE and protocols to make sure that everything ships in 48 hours despite a raging pandemic, but it's going to take losses way down. And everyone bids the stock price up. And they don't have that mojo right now. Yeah. And then AWS, my prediction is AWS is the most profit, is the most valuable company in the world by 2025 after Amazon spins it. It's the fastest growing, uh, most profitable part of, of technology, the cloud, and the biggest kind of best-run cloud company in the world is with now stuck within an e-commerce company called Amazon. So either... Bezos comes back or they spin AWS. It's interesting you talk about storytelling and you, you've said that an entrepreneurship is about really selling and telling a story and that, that that's what the best entrepreneurs do. And that e it's not, you separate that from people who are liars that at the beginning of any enterprise, you're spinning a story, you believe it, you, 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 you're not quite sure how you got there, but you have to have that wonderment and that almost delusional ability to tell a story. Uh, and it's not lying. It's just it's it's just that ability to weave a story that you believe in your gut, and it may or may not be true, but it certainly feels right. Yeah, look, that's what entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. So am I. Entrepreneur is synonym for salesperson. Mm -hmm. You're constantly selling all the time. If you want to be an entrepreneur, that means you have a greater tolerance for risk. You don't mind the prospect of public failure. When you start a company and it fails, and I've done this, it's really fucking embarrassing. Yeah. You feel stupid. You feel like it's an indictment on you personally. And most people are not willing to take that sort of risk around public failure. But what it really means is you got to be selling all the time. You're selling clients. You're selling investors. You're selling employees. You're just constantly selling everybody. And the way you sell, the way you convince people to join your firm, invest in you, is by crafting a narrative that's really compelling. And the kind of core competence of these growthy stocks was that in their kind of initial stages, they had this vision that was so compelling that they could attract so much cheap capital that they were able to build out a fulfillment infrastructure that made FedExes look amateur, that they were able to make so much, invest so much in original content that they kind of uh, aggregated a quarter of a billion consumers, uh, subscribers, that's Netflix. So your ability to craft this story where people just listen and they're like, I'm going to ignore the metrics. I just want to give this person my money is really become the core competence. Now, where you get into trouble is a line between vision, exaggeration, and fraud gets thinner and thinner, right? Adam Newman exaggerated. Elizabeth Holmes lied. You called the one on Adam Newman. You, you were one of the early guys to say, well, well something, something doesn't smell right here. Well, if you if you pull cheap if cheap capital helps you pull the future forward, but what future are you pulling forward? Even with Amazon, they still had they had positive margins when they sold a product a dollar worth of goods on Amazon.com. They got to keep seventeen or twenty cents. With with WeWork, it was every time they sold a dollar, it was costing them a buck forty. They were flying two Bombardier Global Five Hundred Expresses into a mountain every week. And the, the thing is, as they scaled, they were only going to scale their losses. Yeah. So it just, the business never made any sense whatsoever. That was, that was an easy call. That was, you, you know, leveraging this unique insight called math to say, okay, say they do double or triple their revenues. That just means they're going to double or triple their losses. But storytelling has become the, the leaders of today's internet companies all have one thing in common. They speak and you're willing to just enter into consensual hallucination with them that if you give them enough money for long enough, they'll figure it out. Yeah, that, that seems as if that kind of blitzkrieg strategy, which was kind of vogue for a little while in Silicon Valley, is we, we work showed that just buying market share is certainly not the answer. Uh, it's worked for some companies, but it certainly didn't work for them. I want to just shift for a second. Um, you you, you uh, lecture on brand strategy and digital marketing. How do you define a brand? Uh, I think of the intangible associations surrounding a group of products or services. Uh, but I, I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to emotion, something that beyond the product or the usage makes me feel something, mm -hmm. makes me feel closer to God, makes me feel more attractive to mates, makes me feel like a better man, a better mom. It triggers some sort of emotion that results in irrational decisions to get me additional margin that are unearned. Yeah, I, I, I define it as a set of a value system that, that a product assigns to itself that you as a consumer kind of vote and say, I line up with those values, that, that there's something in those values that to your point stimulates something in me or moves me, teaches me something, makes me feel a certain way uh, uh, that is that is 
a value system. And that's the way I've always kind of looked at it. Do you go on the, the whole premise of this podcast is that everything and everybody today is a brand. You know, basically if you've got a Facebook page or an Instagram page, you're a brand because you're putting out there your value system, you know, what it, what it looks like, what it feels like, your, you know, what you believe in, what you want to project about yourself. And am I oversimplifying by saying that everything today is a brand? No, anytime you have an, uh, 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 anytime you think of something without using it, it's technically brand. I mean, I like your definition better than mine, and that's why you built a $500 million business and I built a $20 million brand strategy yeah, firm. Yeah, I, I think you've done okay. So, but when you think about it, what's, what I think is interesting in our world is, generally speaking, from kind of end of World War II, and this was my wrap, to the introduction of Google, the primary algorithm for creating a shit ton of shareholder value was take a mediocre product, a mediocre shoe, salty snack, beer, mediocre car out of Detroit, and wrap these amazing brand codes of toughness, masculinity, mm -hmm. patriotism around it, and then pound away at those associations, leveraging creative people like yourself in across what was something we didn't realize that it was on sale and that it was the cheapest, most efficient medium in the world, and that's broadcast. You got five times the viewership in the Academy Awards for a third of the price. So it's either 15 times too expensive now or it was 15 times too inexpensive then. And then stuff the channel with it and print money. And then Google came along and said, all right, brand used to be the weapon of diligence. Now Google is the weapon of diligence or TripAdvisor, your social graph. And the example I use is I'm going to London next week. I almost always stay at the Mandarin Oriental of the Four Seasons we're used to because someone else is paying and B, because they always deliver an eight. Those brands are solid. Those, brand means, those brands mean we're going to deliver a solid mm -hmm. eight. You're, you're, you know, we're going to do a good job. But in the last few years, I used my social graph and TripAdvisor to find, no, I want to stay at the Conant or I want to stay at Chilton. I like to hang out with people younger and better looking than me. That's right. my primary criteria <laughs> when I travel. And I find out through my social graph that there's these little boutique hotels in different cities that offer that. And so my new weapons of diligence are no longer just the brand, they're social, they're Google, and this era of sort of the intangible, this madman era, is kind of the sun has passed midday on it. And it's not to say brands aren't any less powerful, it's just that they're being built through innovation, supply chain, Amazon and Apple, their victory in brands have been forward integrating in stores and creating Amazon Prime. So it's sort of, I feel as if what I've been teaching, if I'm not careful, is essentially I teach kids, I train them to go to General Foods as a brand manager and be laid off two or three years. I think the era of traditional General brand Food. building. You, you and I are old guys at General Foods. <laughs> yeah, remember but, that? But that's when I, when I started out, when I came out of school, the best thing you could do was be a brand manager at, G, at, at right. Procter & Gamble or, or General Foods. I mean, that, that was the pedigree that you went for. Yeah. And it's just, it, right. it, it, it seems so quaint and antiquated now. Yeah, it seems passe now. You are a believer in NFTs. Uh, that you that you're very bullish on where the world is. You know, there's not a day that goes by somebody says explain NFTs to me. And you know, uh, talk to me why you feel so strong that that it's here to stay in, in a meaningful way. So I'm fascinated. So I think Web three is just branding. I don't think this whole notion of decentralization is all just marketing. It's Web two point oh one, and there's some innovation there around coins or or tokens. I think beyond Ethereum and Bitcoin, you're just it's just Kino, which is speculative. I think most of them are going to zero. DAOs are really interesting, this idea of decentralized, a decentralized mechanism for raising money and governance. I think that's really interesting. I'm bullish on NFTs because I think everything comes back to instinct. And most powerful instinct is survival. 99% of Americans wake up every morning and think, I'm going to be fine, I'm going to survive, which takes us to the second most powerful instinct, which is propagation. And I think we spend a ton of money. Show me an irrational consumer product and I'll show you something that you think makes you more attractive to the opposite sex. Even if you're in a monogamous relationship, we're just so hardwired to try and be more attractive to the opposite sex such that we can punch up an evolutionary. I, I've always believed that, that, that's, that everything comes back to that. Everything, every accu 100%. accumulation of power and money and status comes back to that very primal thing that's so interesting. It, it, look, if we stop having babies or we start mating with people less attractive and less intelligent and less smart than us, the, the species eventually gets dumber and stupider and goes away. So this is a very powerful instinct, wanting to feel powerful, wanting to feel... The reason why I wear my, my AirPods around is I think it says I'm one of the billion wealthiest people in the world, iOS users. I'm elegant. I'm sophisticated. I'm into technology. I'm a good storyteller. 
have sex with me. The reason I have a Tesla is it says, I care about the earth, yet I'm a fucking baller, have sex with me. And so you effectively have with NFTs are signaling, people used to date and mate offline. Now, post-COVID, the majority of relationships, and we'll see if it lasts, are starting online. So we used to signal our worth as a maid offline with a Rolex or ordering 1942 in a club or having a Ferrari. Now we signal online. And the way we signal, I think, online is going to be increasingly through NFTs. And we have a generation of kids coming of age who don't think it's ridiculous to spend money for a skin on Fortnite, which communicates to their friends that they're cool and they have money and they're powerful. So I think NFTs are going to be the new online signaling in terms of our value, uh, our kind of our our potential as a mate online. So I'm actually quite bullish on NFTs. And if if the way we signal, a lot of my friends, when they finally, if they come into money, they start buying art because I think they think it signals that they're an interesting, sophisticated yeah, person. Yeah, that was, that was, just call me one of those idiots, exactly. <laughs> well, art's outperformed every asset class. But it really, ha- it, I, never, I never bought it for that reason, but I've collected art and it, it is... It's the one thing that just keeps going up. It's interesting. Yeah, it just keeps going up. It's crazy. Yeah. So so it's basically a bet on the top 1% who just continue to kill it. But anyways, the the ability to signal, I think if Ferrari and Chanel and Hermes can figure out a way to wrap their arms around the uh, intellectual property rights such that if you want to have a Ferrari parked outside your house in the metaverse, if you want to have a Chanel coin or a Chanel logo on your Twitter profile, if they can figure out a way or you want to say, I own the NFT for this artist, I don't think that's any stranger than when I buy a Grayson Perry that's signed one of 300 uh, and I own it. Now, the consumption is a little bit different, but I'm actually, I'm bullish on NFTs because I think signaling is moving online just as mating is moving online. It's just this simple premise of I, I want the, the best pelt that I can show off and it's just comes in a different form now. It's very, very simple. Exactly you, right. you mentioned young people. Uh, I'm a believer that this new uh, hybrid model the work at home, the flexible work that's that's kind of so accelerated post-pandemic. I worry about not having mentoring in the workplace, that it's just that uh, there's people not going back to work. I went into my old ad agency to visit the CEO, and I think the New York office has about 300 people, and there were 25 people there. And I remembered so much, and I might be dating myself so much about the energy of a workplace and what happened there and the collaboration and the, the the human cues that happened. And I worry that we're losing a lot now, obviously, the, as employees have more and more power and just say, no, I'm, I'm only working two days a week in the office or I'm not coming to the office at all. I'm curious as you spend your time with young people now, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, like you, I speak to a lot of CEOs. I'd say the number one question right now, it used to be about something tech related. The number one question you get most from leadership and companies now is this notion of remote work. How do they handle it? What's the approach? What are the upsides, the downsides? I think we have a tendency to look at things as zero or one. We either, you know, kind of the David Solomon or Jamie Dimon, everyone's in the work, back to work, same, same as, same as it always was, uh, or you can't work here, or there's, oh, we're going all remote. And I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle. I don't think we're going to be in the office as much. But I do think, I think that the world is headed towards more where Apple is. And Apple is kind of suggesting aggressively that you need to be in the office kind of two to three plus days a week. Now, the advice I give to young people is get in the office as much as you can before you start collecting spouses and dogs. Because your trajectory and your income is a function of proximity. What do I mean by that? Every, every promotion, if there's a vice president position opens up, there are two or three people who are qualified for that promotion. The person who gets it will be the person who has the best relationship with the decider. And relationships are a function of proximity. When you get a mentor, you get someone who's invested in your success. When, they start, when you start asking them questions and being vulnerable to, to you or being vulnerable to them, they start getting invested in your success. It is not easy to acquire or provide mentorship over Zoom. Yeah. So what I say to young people is, look, be clear. If you want to move to Boulder, Colorado and ski in the afternoons, fine. You're going to make less money. So while you can afford to and while you can live in a shitty apartment in Brooklyn or wherever, Gowanus, and get into the office every goddamn day as a young person, if you are economically really motivated, get into the office every day. Go through the pain of putting on a pantsuit or a suit, blow drying your hair, getting on you know, the J train and getting in. What I say to leaders is, 
I think you should just be honest with people. I think you need to say, look, if you want, need to be at home a certain number of days a week, we understand. And there are certain people, mostly women, who are the caregivers who really value the flexibility. And to shut that off is to ignore this incredible workforce of young people who have come to expect the flexibility around temporary work. But I'd also be honest with them. I'd say, bottom line, there's a place for you here. If you're an outstanding sole contributor and you want to be remote some or most of the time, you're going to make less money. You're not going to progress as fast because it's a pain in the ass to get into the office, but there's an electricity and an energy and a value to it. And you're just more likely to make more money. So I think it's a hybrid, Donnie, but I think we should all be honest with each other. It's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. Yeah, it's great to work from home. And guess what? You're not going to make as much money. You mentioned women. Uh, now 60% of graduates are women. I, I've written a couple of books and one of my chapters in one of my books is that I believe that women are superior to men in business. If you give me this, and I, my, I built my company, seven of my nine senior partners were women. And this is before it was vogue to be doing that. And I found that women, if you give me a man and a woman of the same exact, if you could do a little science experiment and say that um, here's the exact same brains and drive and blah, 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 that I found almost without exception that I was so much more, spent much more time managing men's sense of their own self. How big is their office? How big is their paycheck? How big is their dick? How big is everything? Whereas women, and this is generalization, were more collaborative. And it wasn't as much of a zero sum game about what you're gaining versus what I'm losing. Have you kind of, you have any feelings about that? That I, give me, I always say, give me a woman every single time over a man. So a lot there. So you and I are cut from the same cloth here. Every one of my CEOs, every one of my partners, with the exception of one, has either been LGBTQ or a woman. Mm -hmm. And there's data that shows for young women, in terms of the things we value in information economy companies, women are outperforming men on every metric. Seven of 10 high school valedictorians are girls. It's not even 60-40 college grads. The more important number we don't talk about is it's 66-33. I'm sorry, college admissions, college students is 60-40 female to male, but it's 66-33 female college graduates. For every one male college graduate in the next five years, there's going to be two female college graduates. I'm sure you deal with the same firms I deal with, the Goldmans and the Googles of the world. If you talk to anyone under the age of 30, it's a woman. Yeah. So the behaviors, the ability to delay gratification, the discipline, the maturity they show, they just mature earlier. Testosterone encourages risk-taking and uh, aggression and violence. And in some instances, that's warranted. We want some of that big dick energy among Ukrainian soldiers right now. And while it's easy to fall into the very accepted narrative of women are better on every level, every time, Donnie, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that part of your success was that you pot brought together some peanut butter and chocolate of very male attributes that you brought and very female attributes. Amen. Neither is better, but one plus one equals three. You brought some of that bravado, reckless, obnoxious, mm -hmm. grasping beyond your reach. And let's be honest, it's fine as, an academic, as anybody to say that it's kind of the Simpson strategy of the world. Homer, all men are dopes, <laughs> but trying to overcome their problems, but have a decent heart. And all women are just amazing on every level. I right. think it infantilizes women. I think it creates expectations that are unreasonable. And quite frankly, it's just not true. There are some attributes around masculinity, around the way the male brain works, that are very important for business and are very uh, productive. We, we find some of those things off-putting. But I, I, in sum, I agree with you that women are outperforming men. I think that one of the existential crises in America over the next 10 years is failing young men. But we all want to talk about how women outperform men in the workplace and they're better. Yeah, yeah, on some levels. But the most successful companies bring together that peanut butter and chocolate because there's also some fantastic attributes that what I'll call more male attributes bring to the workplace. You, you nailed it at my company. That was it. And I knew I had those certain attributes and I was surrounding myself with the other attributes. And it was that. And it was interesting. Uh, when I got airlifted out of there, it wasn't as successful anymore because the model, that kind of male-female dynamic model didn't exist as much anymore. It's, it's interesting you had that insight. You you also have a great front row seat as, as being a professor is that you watch every year, every year, every decade, young people come through. Um, if I was going to ask you mindset of young people today sitting at Stern versus 20 years ago, uh, it's, it's hard to kind of make one blanket statement, but okay. I used to sit out and look at, you know, 30 or 40 or 60 or 200 students in a lecture 
And the net net I was taking away from them was X. Now, 20 years later, with the generation turnover, what's my, is, where's the net net? How, how we've moved forward, how we've moved backwards. I know that's a very tough kind of uh, uh, overall assessment, but just what, what comes to your mind as I, as, I, as I throw that out there? So there's a lot there. I'll give you some top line observations. Uh, I teach, keep in mind, I call my kids, their average age is 28. I yeah. teach second year MBA. Yeah. So they're not, they're adults. And but they're young people. They're still people with most in front young. of them. Yeah. But half of them, I'll teach part-time. A lot of them are at Goldman or at Google or at right. Salesforce. These are accomplished professionals. And they're tracking. They're freakishly remarkable. If you're at a top 20 business school, you're kind of freakishly remarkable or your parents are freakishly rich. <laughs> and those are, the two, those are the two cohorts that succeed in America. And every year, the kids get more impressive. Smarter, harder working, more socially conscious. Every year, they get more impressive. And people have this kind of cynical trope around how expectant they are. I find these kids are just, I'm just absolutely inspired and blown away by how smart, how thoughtful, how civic-minded they are. Where I see some danger, if you will, is in the undergrads. And that is, I think wealthy parents, such as the two of us, spend so much time using sanitary wipes on our kids' lives that they don't develop their own immunities. And then you couple that with social media, which may be makes them have unreasonable expectations around their looks or the wealth they should obtain. And you couple all this and they get to college and they get their heart broken or they get their first C and they literally can't handle it. And what's happened in high school and colleges was, uh, uh, I remember I just went back to my high school. Every week, I don't know, I went to a big public high school. Every, it felt like every week there was a memorial for a kid who died in a drunk driving accident. It was drunkenness that was killing us. We had cars with no airbags. We'd go out, we'd get ridiculously fucked up. Mad was just getting traction. And kids would roll their Jeep. Brett Weinson, great kid, rolled his Jeep dead. Bobby Mitchell, hit on a moped, late at night, probably fucked up. Now, the death rates aren't down, but it's deaths of despair. They've gone from being drunk to depressed. And a combination of social and also concierge parenting, and I I made an an incorrect assumption about you. I don't know your approach to parenting, but I can just see what's happened to me. I I love my kids. I want to make it all good for them. Yeah, yeah, I want to give them everything. And I have the resources and the ability now, and I'm kind of all over them and know what they're doing. I'm following them on TikTok and on Snap. How old are you you two kids? I started late. I have 11 and 14-year-old boys. Yeah, me too. I have little ones also. At least you don't have girls. It's, It's so brutal watching my my 15-year-old, watching her on, you know, just show me on, oh, look at this girl and look at this girl. And everybody's curated, perfected visual appearance. And it's 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 the devil. I mean, it's painful. It really is. It's it's not as brutal with boys, but it's it's just, it's devastating. Well, boys bully physically and verbally. Girls bully relationally. And we have put these nuclear weapons in their hands in the form, uh, in the form of phones. And uh, you know, when I, I think a lot about big tech and I think about in 10 years, what will we look back on and regret most? And we'll regret that we let them weaponize our elections. We'll regret misinformation around vaccines. We'll regret that we let them grow so big that a lot of great companies never got out of the crib because they would use their dominance, their anti-monopoly behavior to kind of overrun weak regulatory institutions. But I think the thing we will absolutely regret the most, Donnie, is I think we will look back on this era and think, how did we let this happen to our kids? And what I encourage everyone our age that didn't grow up with social media to contemplate is imagine being faced with your full self. Imagine being presented with your full self 24 by 7. Yeah. You never get to leave the high school cafeteria. That's it. That's it. it was, there's no safe haven anymore. You, even if you were a kid that had a tough time at school, you came home to a safe place where you got to turn yeah. it off. And it, there is no safe haven anymore. I was... I was my senior year in high school, I was, or my junior year, I was five foot 10, 120 pounds with really bad acne, you know, but I got to come home and my mom thought I was the bomb. Yeah. I was a decent athlete and I'd go get some self-esteem there. And I got to go home and just watch TV and escape from all of it. Yeah. Can you imagine if you're a girl, either bullying or being bullied, it never gets never turned stops. off. And what we're seeing is we're just seeing the, 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 the percentage of the number of admittances to hospital for self-harm. This is girls cutting themselves is up 80%. 
So I think we're going to look back on this. I said this on CNN and I got a ton of shit and Jimmy Fallon made fun of me on late night TV. I'd rather my 15-year-old son, I'd rather give him a pound of marijuana and a bottle of Jack than social media. I don't disagree I think it's less dangerous. I don't disagree. So how do we Especially put some of that toothpaste? Girls. How do we put, it, some problems are Rubik's cubes and you go, how, how do we put that toothpaste back in the tube? How do you, you know, this thing now is, is an attachment. It's, it's, a, it's a limb for young people. Right. Uh, so how do we, how do we get some sanity back? Well, what's the answer? What's what's the we know the problem? What's the solution? I, I think this is a uh, similar to alcohol and drunk driving. I do think it's a fixable thing. I think I think parents have to take some responsibility and really understand what their kids are doing online and make sure they have an open dialogue. And it's a little bit harder because when your kid is coming home fucked up, you know he's fucked up when he walks in the door and he's drunk. You don't know what they're doing in their room on their phone. You don't know who's bullying or being bullied. But I do think. You have to be very conscious, especially with girls, what is going on in social media with them. Uh, two, I think that the government plays a role. We age gate marijuana, porn, uh, the military, alcohol. Why? I see no reason that a 14-year-old should be allowed on Instagram. I just see no reason that we shouldn't be age gating. I think we should be holding these companies accountable. If, if you could reverse engineer this podcast to teen depression and teen suicide, we'd be in a world of hurt. We'd yeah. be, and yet they're able to reverse engineer social media to teen depression and teen side. And somehow these companies have managed to be exonerated from any legal liability because of Section 230 and a bunch of other things. So age gating, legal liability, and I think parents have to take some responsibility for what their kids are doing online. But I think these are, I think that social media and these companies benefit from this bereft uh, notion or narrative that these problems are too big to yeah. solve, that we just have to live with them. I don't think the world is what it is. I think the world is what we make of it. We can absolutely solve these problems. Would you change 230? Which basically for viewer listeners out there is just, it gives it immunity to, to uh, the social media companies that broadcast companies and cable companies don't have, that they're not responsible for what's on their on their uh, platforms. That's right. So the, the basic premise that we get wrong is people think it's a moderation and a content problem. And it leads us to this unproductive argument around First Amendment and free speech. It's not the content that's posted on these platforms that is the problem. It's that it's what content gets elevated. It's the algorithm. And that's right. And so an algorithm says, okay, here's someone who says that the Moderna vaccine alters your DNA. And a lot of people weigh in and say, oh, yeah, that's true. I got, a, 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 I, I started having rashes when I got, the, when I got the, the vaccine. And then people move in and say, no, you're, you shouldn't be saying this. That's entirely wrong. And it creates hundreds, if not thousands of comments. Every comment is an impression, which is another Nissan ad, which is more shareholder value. So the algorithms, which are benign, go, whatever causes engagement, we love and will elevate that content. And the content that really inspires engagement is enragement. And so what we have are algorithms and financial incentives that encourage a discourse to become more coarse and also elevate misinformation. The dissenter's voice, the anti-vaxxers, should absolutely be on Facebook. The people who believe in the conspiracies should have a voice because occasionally conspiracies aren't conspiracies. They end up being true. The problem is most of this content gets far more sunlight than it would get on its own because the algorithms love misinformation. Mm -hmm. So I think once, so what would I do with 230? I would say once content is elevated algorithmically beyond its organic reach, section 230 protections go away because it's no longer the individual posting it. It's you, the organization posting it, meaning you have to take responsibility for it once you elevate it. So if you're advising Elon Musk right now, and um, do we put Trump back on or not on Twitter? Well, first off, I mean, there's a lot there. I have a bias against Elon Musk. He calls me names on yeah, Twitter, I know. so I don't you, like yeah, But you had, a, you had a good comeback when you called him pedal boy or whatever it was. So I thought that was pretty good. Well, he told me I was an insufferable numbskull. And be right. clear, I am not insufferable. But <laughs> so... I mean, my son, my 11-year-old son came home the next day and was very serious. Never talks to me when he comes home. Usually heads to the video games. He comes in and goes, Dad, what's, what's a numbskull? <laughs> like, it got back to my 11-year-old. Really? Um, look, I, I don't think the Twitter acquisition is going to close. I think if Twitter didn't have this offer, it'd be trading at 20 bucks. And I think, and now the Tesla stock is going down. His bank account is going down, which he's going to have to increasingly margin. And he's basically bought something that is now worth 40% less. I just... People think he's bought the company. He hasn't. He spent a billion dollars for an option to buy it 
at $54 a share. And guess what, Donnie? He's not going to exercise that option. I don't think Elon Musk is going to own Twitter. Having said that, if he does, if he does in fact, uh, operate Twitter, I, I think that you should probably put an ex-president back on. But if he continues to spread election misinformation, I think you kick him off again. I think it's pretty simple. And this notion, this bullshit notion that this has anything to do with First Amendment First Amendment is that the government shall pass no law that inhibits free speech. It doesn't mean anything for private companies. And when you have a guy using a platform, I mean, when they kicked President Trump off the platform, election misinformation went down somewhere between 30 and 40%. That is a smart move for a private company. And by the way, they won accolades for it. They kicked him off 11 days after he was, 11 days before he, or after he lost the election. They deserve no credit for that, yeah. that, that bold move. But I think eventually you put the president back on with conditions that says, okay, if you continue to spread lies based on how much oxygen they get, as a private company, we will make the decision that we have not only obligations to shareholders, but we have obligations to the Commonwealth. And if you continue to spread this big lie, we're going to kick you off again. Maybe it's not permanent, but we're going to kick you off. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Speaking of the big lie, and I talk a lot about this on television, and, and, and I don't think people are worried enough at how the precipice of our democracy and how how fragile it is right now. It's something we've all grown up entitled to, uh, assumed was there. And, you know, if not for just one or two or three brave individuals in the last election, we they would have stole it. They would have voted if you didn't have a Brad Rassenberger, if you didn't have somebody in Pennsylvania. And right now, the state legislatures are set up in certain states where they can take the results of the election. They can bring them into their own hands. And we are really on the precipice. I'd love your take on that. Well, I've, I've seen you talk about this, I think on Morning Joe, and I thought Bill Maher's piece on this was really chilling. Look, I, I think it all comes down to, when you think about how to build a better America, I think most or many of our biggest problems come down to one thing, and that is because of gerrymandering and because of a primary election system, we're just sending our leaders are just whack jobs from the left and right. Yeah that the majority of America is somewhere in the middle. I couldn't agree with The majority with you more. of America believes, believes in the right to, to choice, but within certain limits. They're not no abortion all the time. They're not unfettered access to abortion in late, you know, in the third trimester. The majority of people are somewhere in the middle. On most things. And, yeah, I agree with you. I love, I'm with you. Not, I'm a raging moderate. I, I know you call yourself that. That's exactly yeah. the term I use. I'm yeah. a raging moderate. And I, I'm left of center. I'm, I'm left of center, you know, you know, left of center. Most of my friends are left of, left of center, right? Whatever it might be. And we have a primary system. That rewards the opposite. I'll give yeah. you an example. Yeah. I, I've gotten a lot of shit for this. I'm friends with Mehmet Oz. Mm -hmm. I'm personal friends with him. I don't know him well, but I know him. I know him and his wife. The Mehmet running for office now is not the Mehmet I know. No. It's, I know Mehmet. It's a creation that you have, to, you have to play to that, that and, distinct far and, right. And here's I mean, the it, thing. That's it. Here's the success, thing. That's Mehmet, it. That's the only success model. Mehmet is really smart. And he realizes the only way I can get an office, I actually think Mehmet's a moderate. That, uh, the guy I've known for 20 years is a moderate. And you have to be so batshit crazy to be elected in your primary that we are sending Ted Cruz in the squad. No one else. Yeah. All, and the, the reason why a woman's right to choice is being threatened is the Democrats mistakenly will say, this will outrage everybody and we'll win more Senate seats. Well, here's the bottom line. Throughout 90% of history, Republicans have somewhere between 45 and 55 Senate seats. The key to all this is occasionally we got to send a Lisa Murkowski. We got to send some moderate Republicans and some moderate Democrats that can get together and say, do we really want to take away a woman's right yeah. to choice here? Because all we needed was two or three moderates to say to these justices, your views on choice are really uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And we wouldn't have had one or two or th two of the three of these justices be approved if we'd had just a few moderate Republicans. But We've, we have now minority rule in the United States where it's either far left or far right and their job is to inflame and enrage each other. And it's, it's totally, it's, it's, we don't have a democracy right now. We have minority rule. I hear you. Hey, Scott, you've been so generous with your time. Final question. And it's been a privilege talking to you. I, I, I love your mind. And I just, we, we could talk for 20 hours. Final question. What's the Scott Galloway brand? Oh, I think about this a lot. I want to, on my tombstone, I wanted to say generous dad and patriot. Love that. 
You, you know what's great about a guy like you is most people, they flummox with that. You know, I ask that question of everybody. It's kind of what the show is about. And most people just hesitate. And what well, that's not a brand. And you, you, just, you just walked right into it. So a uh, man, very in touch with who he is. Scott, appreciate it. Continued success. Really, well, I'm a big fan. Yeah, likewise, Johnny. I appreciate your time. Congrats on all your success. Thanks, buddy. You stay well, okay? Hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast and our interview with Professor Galloway and our Brands of the Week. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, Apple, Spotify, any place else, rate or review or subscribe. And you can watch our videos on YouTube and please uh, subscribe there and also leave your comments. And have a great week. We'll see you next week on Our Brand. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.